My name's Todd. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, Josh and Tim invited me to teach this morning. And um, I just want to say I'm grateful to be standing in front of you guys. Um, normally, I'm down in the basement, like right under this corner, uh, teaching with a whiteboard and uh, uh, just entertaining and hanging out with our uh, middle school and high school students. And so I can't stand up here without talking about uh, the youth ministry and how uh, incredible um, I think it is. But I'm biased because for one big reason. I think we have the best volunteer team uh, in, the, in our church community. And just to stand up here and be able to say thank you to them. So if you know somebody that leads in the youth ministry or volunteers in the youth ministry, um, just give them a high five, give them a hug, tell them thanks. They're really incredible people. Um, and so I just want to say thank you to them. Uh, they, they are what make the ministry successful and faithful. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to say thanks and dote on them. Um, but I, as I was preparing for today, I realized that uh, my, some of my core convictions um, deeply drive what we do uh, in the youth ministry. And there's really, there's really three core convictions that, um, that we would pray that the Lord would bring faithful uh, adults to walk with the students, faithful godly adults to walk with the students as the students discover what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and the Lord has been so faithful to bring those volunteers and those adults. But then there's really two other convictions. There's the conviction that we pray together. Um, that we help make prayer accessible to young people. Um, and the, the second core conviction is that uh, we read the scriptures together, we study the scriptures together and study God's word together, that we make God's word accessible to young people. And those convictions come out of my own uh, experience in the church community or coming to faith when I was 18. And so I didn't grow up in the church. I came to faith when I was 18 and I remember I came to faith through the godly witness of Jesus followers, that it was so compelling to me the way that they lived their lives, and it was in such stark contrast to how I lived and how my family lived that it was so easy for me to see. But there were, there were two things that seemed to be impenetrable for me as I came to faith when I was 18, and that was prayer and the Bible. I had no idea what to do with prayer, what do you mean I'm supposed to communicate and talk and ask this invisible God that created all things, I'm supposed to ask him uh, and talk to him and have a relationship with him. That was definitely strange to me. And the Bible was definitely strange to me, had no idea what to do with it. And so uh, that's part of what I wanna do this morning is really focus in on the Bible part and the scripture part. That's become uh, such a joy to me uh, to teach our students and, and learn alongside them and how to read our Bible and why and why it matters and why we should care uh, in 2020. And so, um, and I, thinking about this, I realized I knew two things. When I was uh, 17, I knew two things about the Bible. And I promise you, this, I was ashamed for a long time, but this is what I knew. I knew that the Bible was the book that Ned Flanders on The Simpsons read and it was, it was like, oh, Bible, Ned Flanders. That was like the, the association that I made. And then the second one was the Bible was the only book that I'd ever seen that had a zipper on it. That was like, 
and I'm sorry if you have a Bible that has a zipper on it. I'm not trying to like tease you, but that it, those are the two things that I knew. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and this morning, um, it's my deep, deep desire and conviction to stand alongside Paul, to stand alongside Jesus, to stand alongside the New Testament authors and really the biblical authors and say that our scriptures point to our Lord and they reveal to us more and more uh, what it means to follow him and who he is and why we can lay our lives down in front of him. And so this morning, that's what we're gonna try and do. Um, and, and real quick, before we start, one thing that's been really helpful uh, coming from knowing that Ned Flanders reads the Bible and that the Bible has a zipper, and I'm not sure why, coming from those two things, there's been a few things I've learned along the way that have been really, really helpful for me to remember as I engage in the scriptures. And so the last few weeks we've been in Romans, and this, this is a great example. We parachute into these books of the Bible, and uh, the biblical authors are, are wanting us to remember the rest of the scriptures as we parachute into one book or one letter or one poem or whatnot. And so um, hopefully this helps, but if I, if I say to you this morning, if I say the phrase, potter's scar, if I say that to you, and you're, what does that mean? And you could like assemble some sort of meaning, like potter's scar, like what, I, those words are familiar, but it's kind of hard to assign the meaning. But if I, sh if I say potter's scar and I show you this picture. Okay, the thing that your brain just did where you have this phrase that I'm not really sure what it means, but then as soon as you know uh, the context of what I'm talking about, that thing that your brain does where all the meaning and all the stories that are associated with that phrase flood into your mind. That's what the biblical authors are hoping that you do when you parachute into Romans, when you parachute, like we are this morning, uh, Psalm 19. They're hoping that you do this. Now, don't like write Josh that I'm like teaching that the Bible is like Harry Potter and Jesus is Harry, but I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. But, <laughs> But that thing that your brain does, I would encourage you this morning that that's, uh, that don't, don't neglect that. When, when we read Psalm 19, the biblical authors are hoping that we make those associations with other parts of our Bible. And it's, it's the beginning of right understanding when we're reading our scriptures together as the church community and in solitude on our own. And so hopefully that's helpful. Let's, let's pray um, and then and then we'll jump into the text. Jesus, we just come before you this morning humbled. Um, Jesus, we have the deep conviction that you are king, that you have spoken to us personally, individually, and corporately. And Lord, we just uh, sit before you this morning uh, eager, humbled to hear from you, and Lord, we just desire to lift you up uh, and, and acknowledge you in your right place as king. So Lord, fill us with the spirit. Help us to have eyes uh, to see and ears to hear. 
And um, Lord, we just proclaim this morning that you're king and that we uh, love you deeply. It's in your son's name, uh, God, that we pray. Amen. Okay, yeah, if you have a Bible, if you have your phone or whatever you use to read your Bible, uh, go ahead and get that out and uh, scroll or open to Psalm 19. And again, as we, as, as we start reading, keep that in mind, um, that we're parachuting into the first three quarters of our Bible, into a psalm, and it has a context. It's in a book, the Psalms, are, is this big book of uh, poems and laments and songs and little commentaries on the Bible. We're parachuting in, and what else is it connected to? The rest of your Bible. And in, again, in preparing for this message, Josh was like, hey, teach whatever you want. And I was like, well, we've been studying in, in uh, youth ministry, we've been studying Psalm 19 for the last month or so. I was like, well, I guess we could just do Psalm 19. And it is, I, I'll just stand up here and say, it is so wonderful to, for the Holy Spirit to gain a footing in your life by meditating on biblical texts as it reveals Jesus more and more. And that has been my experience with Psalm 19. Just having it rumbling around in my brain, the Holy Spirit has been faithful to continue to reveal things to me um, about who Jesus is and what he's like. And it's my deep conviction this morning to show you that Psalm 19 has something to do with Romans, the series that we're gonna be in for a while, and it has something to do with King Jesus. Um, And so let's start, uh, verses one through six. Here we go. Psalm 19, for the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, and day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech and they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And remember that this is King David. It's King David, and King David's meditation and reflection about God and to God has become God's word to us. Let that sink in for a second. And so we're reading King David, and if if you're unfamiliar with who King David is, like super quick context catch up, Bible starts in Genesis. We have Adam and Eve, our first parents. They're in the garden. They're in right relationship with God. And they seize it for themselves and take it upon themselves to turn away from God's rule and reign. And they take their own rule and reign in their own hands, rejecting God, taking the fruit from the tree. And in an act of mercy, God sends them, exiles them out of the garden. And then starts the big biblical drama of uh, the human and God dilemma of we've got a big problem. The humans have taken it upon themselves to rule and reign, shunning God's rule and reign, not listening to his word and his voice, 
and in pride saying that they could do it better. And we know what happens from there. The humans fill the earth. We fill the earth with violence and death and destruction. And through our rebellion, sin enters, and yeah, you know the story. And so God chooses a family through a man named Abraham, and God says, hey, through this man, Abraham, you're gonna have, an, you're gonna have this family, and through this family, I'm gonna restore blessing and right relationship to all nations. And one of the kings of that family, as that family is in the land that they're supposed to be in, and they begin to, uh, God's launching through them this rescue plan, one of the kings of this family, Israel, is King David. And we're reading his reflection on God, God's creation, God's rule and reign, God's word, and his response to God's rule and reign and God's word. And so the one thing that I wanna, one of the things that I wanna know in this first section is, is, the, um, is this first line, the heavens declare the glory of God. And glory is kind of one of those funny like bible words that you don't use a lot. And the thing, we don't, we don't, unfortunately we don't have enough time to get into it today, but when you think of glory, in your mind, think of weighty rule, like weighty, like heavy rule. Um, and I, I try to think of a way to illustrate this, and it's like picking a, a good leader that everybody's excited about is really difficult. Um, and so I just came up with Bill Gates. I don't know if that's a good one. But imagine, imagine right now in this moment, Bill Gates walks into this room and there's just a sense of like, whoa, like he's like really wealthy and he started a really big company and he's like a big contributor to the, again, whatever you think about Bill Gates, he's a big contributor to society and there's just like a, there's just like a whoa. He has a weighty rule or weighty authority. So when you read this, the heavens are declaring the weighty rule of God, that God rules and reigns, and that's significant. Okay. The, <laughs> the skies proclaim, because remember the Harry Potter thing, Potter's scar. When you hear these phrases, stories and images should, should come to your mind. That's part of what the Bible is training you to do. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. What does God rule and reign over? Apparently. All, all the earth. All nations. their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Apparently, King David looks at creation, looks at the heavens in particular, and there's something in them that just announces that God rules and reigns, and his rule and reign is over everything. It's not just a family, it's not just a person. God rules and reigns over everything. And uh, one of, uh, did, did you guys see the, um, the sunrise the other morning? Uh, did you have that picture? Yeah, did you guys see that? It was like Wednesday or Thursday? And, 
Okay, one of the youth leaders took this photo. Isn't this photo great? Aren't they awesome? Yeah, but I mean, it, and, then, and then you hear echoes of uh, Job, if you've read through Job. Job has this moment with God where, he, where God really puts Job in his place and said, hey, Job, did you, like, did you make the deer frolic on the rocks and give birth to the baby deer? Were you there when I created the giant? Yeah, and then you look at this and you're like, man, I struggled to like spread the peanut butter on my toast this morning at <laughs> breakfast. And it's like, man, it, yeah, you've, you've heard this before. There's just, King David looks at this and he says, yeah, he announces God's rule and reign. And there's something about this that just proclaims God's glory, his weighty rule, and that it is over everything in all nations. Nothing is deprived of God's rule, the sun's warmth. Nothing is deprived. Verses seven to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, blameless, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart, and the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and they're sweeter than honey, than the honey from the honeycomb. And so as David continue, King David continues to reflect and meditate on God's creation, God rules and reigns apparently, King David takes it a step further and he says, this God that rules and reigns over all creation has spoken that the creator God himself has spoken a word to humanity. And this this absolutely flies in the face of any sort of agnostic thinking that there's a God, but this God is distant and uninvolved and doesn't care about us and isn't involved. King David actually thinks the exact opposite, that this creator God that made the heavens and the earth and everything and set them uh, in order and beauty and established us as co-rulers with him on the earth, that he has spoken a personal word to humanity. And where has he spoken a personal word to humanity? For King David, he thinks it's through the scriptures. Now, that first line, the law, um, again, this is, a good, this is a good Harry Potter lesson. Um, this is a good Potter's scar lesson. That just like in the first section of Psalm 19, the glory, that, that has, uh, there should be stories that come to mind. There should be uh, images that come to mind. And same thing with this. When you think of the law, uh, it's fair to think, and this is the context, King David is under the law as, uh, as a family member of Abraham and Israel. But it's fair to also think this is the scriptures, this is God's word, this is what we know as, as our Old Testament Bible and Hebrew Bible, and it's the deep conviction of the New Testament authors that part of God's word and part of the scriptures is the New Testament as well. 
So it's fair to hear here God's word in the scriptures, what he has spoken through the prophetic interpretation of Israel's history and where we stand now under King Jesus. And so as you read it, there, if you notice, there's, there's really two things happening, that God speaks and when, when, humanity inter- when humanity has ears to hear and internalizes God's word, stuff happens to the humans. And if you just look through the list really quick, it refreshes the soul. It makes, uh, makes wise the simple. It gives joy to our heart, giving light to our eyes, enduring forever. Everything that God has said is, is righteous. It's better than gold, and it's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And now we have this, now we have this uh, tension or dynamic that our relationship to God's word is to internalize it, and is to be so immersed in it that we begin to embody it, that it changes who we are. And I was thinking through this, and the first like silly thought that came to my mind was, when I, I don't, I said this to a couple people, and they said their moms never said this to them, and I was so shocked. But I, I was a weird kid when I was little, and I loved pickles. I don't know about you guys. But my mom would always say, hey, if you eat any more pickles, you're gonna turn into a pickle. Did, did, did anybody's mom ever say that to them? Yeah? Man, I, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing, that you consume it so much that you begin to embody it. it. It changes who you are. And then the more like, the better analogy or metaphor that I came up with was, there, I, had, I have a friend that grew up um, in Guatemala, but she would come back to the United States for a few years, and then she would go back to Guatemala for a few years, and then she would come back to the United States for a few years. And we were talking about this, and we were talking about some of the like, implications on who you are as a person when you travel between two countries like that for like, kind of long periods of time. And I had never thought about this, but she said that this weird thing happens where once she is speaking Spanish and she's in the language, and then she is immersed in this uh, Spanish-speaking culture that her mind, it just happens, it's like the flip of a switch, that her mind will switch from thinking in English to thinking in Spanish. And I'm not, I'm not smart enough <laughs> to know, uh, really, I know a couple other languages enough to be dangerous. And I'm not smart enough to have ever had that happen, but there's like an intuitive part that's like, whoa, that's crazy that you're so immersed in a language that it becomes the language by which, by which you think. And that's it, that's the thing, is that we wouldn't think about God's word, but that we would think with God's word, that we would think by God's word. Do you get that? And this isn't to say, this isn't like a shaming thing, this isn't a, a should, uh, uh, this isn't to make us feel bad, but for King David, there's this internalizing, you, and, and then you, you hear Jesus' words in the temptation. 
that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. And that when we internalize, when we come to God's word in the scriptures as daily bread, that it, it changes us, it does something to us. And, and there's a switch. We cease to think about God's word and we think by it and we think with it. And I promise this will all come together. It's so good. Uh, and <laughs> so verses one through six, that something about the faithfulness of the heavens declares God's rule and reign. Something about God, this God has spoken to us personally, corporately and individually. And when we internalize that and we immerse ourselves in it, it becomes our language. It becomes the language by which we think. And it has positive implications for who we are as humans. And then let's go to the last section, 11 through 14. By them, by your words, Lord, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. King David's reflecting on God's rule and reign he has eyes to see. King David has ears to hear that this God has spoken personally to us in his scriptures. And what is King's, King David's response? It's to humble himself. And this morning, I want to submit to you that there is no other response. That if we have eyes to see God's rule and reign, if we have ears to hear God's word, that it will humble us. And this isn't uh, like make me worthless, I think I'm a dirtbag or I'm not worth anything. No, it's the exact opposite, that we become aware of our immense responsibility to steward God's world faithfully as co-rulers and co-heirs. And this heavy, heavy truth that when we come to God as ruler and reigner, we have ears to hear his word, we realize that we fail. And not only do we fail, but it's through us that sin has entered into the world and death and destruction. And there's a really interesting dynamic too with, uh, in the second line, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults, my hidden sin keep your servant also from willful sins that they may not rule over me. And then you get this these two categories, that there are things that we do that we're not even aware of, that there are things that we inject into this world and into relationships with one another that we're not even aware of. And then there are things that we are aware of that we still do in just straight up rebellion against God. And then you, again, you hear Paul's words. I 
do what I don't want to do, and the thing that I don't want to do, I keep on doing, in this tension that we wrestle with. And here in the third line, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. A big, like, flashing light should go off in your brain there. Think of Cain and Abel. What does God say to Cain? That if you, if you do what's good, won't, won't it go well for you? Won't I accept you? But if you don't do what's good, if you ignore my voice, sin is crouching at your door desiring to have you. And you must rule over it. And here's this tension that we're in as humans, that we're supposed to rule over sin. But the tragic irony is that sin ends up ruling over us. And in ways that we aren't even aware, that we haven't even discovered yet. And by God's grace, he's been gentle with us. And it will be revealed at some point. Ways that we don't even know, and then ways that we are aware of. And this is our dilemma, that we acknowledge that God rules and reigns, that he has spoken. And gosh, we are unfaithful to our calling. And this is King David's reflection. And King David in Israel was, was proclaimed as righteous. And he was a model and a type. And who would eventually come in King David's lineage and as King David's son, Messiah? And so if we zoom out the whole of, the, the whole of Psalm 19, we're left with this reflection of King David. Gosh, that there would be someone faithful to proclaim God's rule and reign. That there would be somebody that so embodies God's word that they embody it fully and faithfully and that they humble themselves before God. That somebody would come that announces God's rule and reign that somebody would come that would be the true and full embodiment of God's word and that the response of this faithful ruler would be humility. Do you, do you get it? That somebody would come and proclaim God's rule and reign. That somebody would come embodying God's word. That somebody would come and lay down their life in humility. King Jesus. When, when, when King Jesus shows up, what's the phrase that's on his lips? Repent, for God's kingdom is at hand. God rules and reigns. What does John, the gospel author John, what does he call Jesus? The word of God. That he is Jesus himself. I didn't, I didn't come to get rid of your Bible. I came to show you what it looks like to be fulfilled. I came to fulfill it and be it embodied. And then we know what kind of life did Jesus live as a king and as a ruler? A life of humility. He gave his life. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And there it is. King Jesus. 
And so we look at Psalm 19 and we walk away with this expectation that somebody would come with this perspective but do it faithfully. And then you run into this, well, what about the sin part? What about the confession of sins? There's like hidden things and there are things that I do willfully. And have you ever thought about, and the the destruction that it sows into the world, have you ever thought about Jesus' baptism? John comes and announces a baptism of repentance of sins. What's the first thing Jesus does in his ministry? He's baptized. You're like, well, and even John had a response to this. Well, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you need to be baptized by me? And Jesus said, it's to fulfill all righteousness. That Jesus would walk through a symbolic act associating himself with the sins of humanity, being sinless himself. And then have you ever thought about Jesus' prayer that he teaches his disciples, the Lord's Prayer? That he said, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. And you're like, well, I don't think that Jesus was just teaching the disciples that prayer in that way. He was praying that himself. Father, forgive us. That he had associated himself with his brothers and sisters' sin. And then you get this picture of Jesus associating himself, being sinless, associating himself and taking it upon himself the sins of humanity. The things that we are unaware of, that we, we cling to, that we haven't given up to God, and the things that we willfully do, that Jesus took these upon himself. And then again, you hear Paul's words echo in your ear that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And my invitation this morning is that as we acknowledge that God rules and reigns in King Jesus, that we acknowledge that Jesus is the embodiment of God's word, is faithful, that Jesus lived a life of humility that how, how could we respond any other way? That we would be faithful to proclaim God's word. And Josh has been encouraging us week after week that part of what it means to be the church is to walk outside of the church and be in the world and proclaim God's reign in Jesus. That this would be on our lips. This is what it means to be faithful. That we would walk out of this building corporately and individually announcing God's rule and reign. That we would, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, um, what symbol does Jesus give us to partake in regularly? The bread and the cup. That we come to the word of God and that we would physically ingest it, that we would eat it in remembrance that we might embody the word of God in Jesus. What is, what is the church called? The body of Christ, yeah. And all these images and all these things come together. And so I would just invite you this morning, the, the only response is humility. If you're, in, if you're in a place, you're like, what do I do next, Lord? What's your will? What's your call? The, the for sure 
the for sure answer is always humility. Humble yourself. Acknowledge God is king. Come under his word that we might embody it. Is God's word, I, I do this all the time with students and they're, it's super annoying to them now, but is God's word the scriptures or is God's word Jesus? Yes. <laughs> yes. That we can't, you know, people are really worried about uh, this like cultural thing, like I want Jesus but I'm not down with the church. That's, that's, deeply, prob- that's deeply problematic. But I would add to that, we're in a place where people want Jesus without his word. People want the word without God's word. It doesn't work that way. You cannot divorce Jesus from the story uh, that he comes out of in the scriptures. That we would embody and ingest God's word in the elements. And lastly, uh, that we would live lives of humility. That we would count others' interests higher than our own, that we would lay down our lives uh, in love for our neighbor, that we would constantly acknowledge Jesus as king, that we would see ourselves as rulers under a ruler, King Jesus. And as you read through Romans, keep this in mind. I am like 110% convinced that Paul had Psalm 19 on his brain when he was writing Romans. And he quotes from Psalm 19 in Romans chapter 10. And so have this in your brain, this dynamic. And um, may, may we never be accused of not being humble people. May we never be accused of hard-heartedness and pride. May, may we be accused of being humble people like our king. Personality tests, the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, those don't exempt us from humility. Humility is not a personality trait, it's a posture of our heart. And this morning I would just invite you to that. So if there's an, if there's an area in your life, if, if there's an area in your life that isn't surrendered to Jesus, if you've forgotten about the word, that it's, it's our sustenance, if you've rebelled against God's good rule and reign, what he says is good, come to him. He did this because he loves us. He gave us this example in King Jesus because he loves us. And this morning, come to him. Depend on him. Put your trust in him. It's a a safe place. And I want to close with, uh, with one more passage in Ephesians. It's Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 20. And it, it's not going to be up on here. I'm just going to read it out loud. But my prayer for our church community is that we always step forward in humility, that we ask, Lord, help us to be more faithful rulers and reigners alongside you. Help me become aware of the things about me individually and us corporately that we're guilty of sinning against you, that we haven't surrendered to you. That the church as the body of Christ may be seen as the glory of God. That, that first line, that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
that the church may declare the glory of God when people look in on us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As a servant for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, there's one Holy Spirit, and just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's close in prayer.